Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, the text that we read just a few moments ago before we sang uh, the last song. It's going to be our emphasis and our focus today in a message entitled, Christ Jesus Came Into the World to Save Sinners. In 1 Timothy, Paul provides guidance for church life, and by providing guidance for church life, He also provides us with guidance for Christian living. And at the heart of the message is the truth about salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And there's a strong emphasis in our passage today on the power of God in salvation. The experience of encountering Jesus Christ and being saved by him leads us to a life of thanksgiving and of praise. God entrusted Paul with the gospel And he counted him faithful for the ministry. Uh, We're reminded that you don't have to be especially capable or smart or talented to be counted faithful. You just have to be faithful. And that's God's call on all of our lives is to be faithful with what he's entrusted us with as we serve him and as we make him known. So we're going to work through this passage verse by verse. And I want you to note first off that apart from Christ Jesus, we are helpless sinners. Apart from Christ Jesus, we are helpless sinners. Look at verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. This saying is trustworthy occurs five times in the pastoral epistles. It indicates that what follows is true, And because it's true, it can be trusted, and the trustworthiness of the statement is further stressed by the phrase, deserving of full acceptance, or worthy of full acceptance. Both refer specifically to the role of Jesus Christ. And Christ Jesus came into the world. He makes a foundational statement here uh, that we understand and build on in the gospels in that God became flesh in the incarnation. And when Jesus came into the world, this was God entering into the created order. This was God taking on flesh. And Jesus in this world was 100% God and 100% man. And he remains today eternally so. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed the glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Christ Jesus came into the world and he came into the world to save sinners. Who are sinners? Well, it's people whose lives and actions are contrary to the character and the will of God. It is people who have missed the mark of God's holiness. So what we understand is that God is the standard. It's his righteousness that is the standard. It's his holiness that is the mark. And one sin makes us a sinner. We are born sinners, so we are sinners by nature, and we are also sinners by choice. And all of us have done things contrary to the character and to the will of God. 
Now, this is a very important truth because sometimes I think the gospel is presented in such a way that it's almost like it's only about reaching your full potential. That's not the main point. Uh, Does God want us to reach our full created potential? Yes, of course he does. He grows us and he develops us as we follow him. Uh, But it's not just about feeling good about yourself. It's not about helping you have success in life. Even though when we are in Christ, then we can do the things that actually matter. We can do things that actually have eternal value. It's not about just giving you a peace of mind about what's going to happen in eternity. Although it's very important to have a peace of mind about what's going to happen in eternity. The reason for the gospel is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To rescue lost people. To seek and to save the lost. So when we learn the truth about what he came for and why he came, we realize that it's the greatest rescue mission that has ever been undertaken. That the eternal Son of God would leave the glory of heaven, the perfection of heaven, the worship and the praise of heaven, and he would enter into the mess of this world that we live in. That he would come into this experience that we live that he would be tempted at every point as we are, yet would be without sin. And the reason that he did so is to seek and to save the lost. It's as the great hymn by Isaac Watts says, says in part, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm, for sinners such as I? Now, in a striking turn in this verse... Paul writes of sinners, and then he says this. He says, I am the worst of them. I am the chief among them. I am the foremost of all the sinners. Now, that literally means that he is the first, not in a chronological way, but rather in his understanding of the serious nature of his sin. So when he looks to Christ Jesus and he understands why Christ Jesus came into this world and he sees himself in comparison to that, he understands that he is indeed the worst of sinners. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee before he was saved. He had a wicked past in the sense that he blasphemed Jesus. He persecuted the church. He had Christians tortured and even killed. He was there when Stephen was stoned for his proclamation of faith. And he says here, not I was the worst of sinners. He says rather, I am the worst. Now here's what I think is going on here. The closer that you get to God, the closer you come to the light, the closer you come to the reality and the realization of the holiness of God, the more you become aware of your sin, the more you understand your need for God, the more you understand the depths of your condition being separated from God, and then what God does for you when he reconciles you to himself through Christ Jesus. And it's in that realization that you can make a statement similar to what Paul makes here when he says, I am the worst, I am the chief, I am the foremost. The Puritan preacher from the 17th century, Thomas Goodwin, wrote this to his son. He said, when I was threatening to become cold in my ministry, and when I felt 
Sabbath morning coming and my heart not filled with amazement at the grace of God. Or when I was making ready to dispense the Lord's Supper. Do you know what I used to do? I used to turn up and down among the sins of my life. And I always came down again with a broken and a contrite heart. Ready to preach as it was preached in the beginning, the forgiveness of sins. He said, I do not think I ever went up the pulpit stairs that I did not stop for a moment at the foot of it and take a turn up and down among my sins. And I do not think that I ever planned a sermon that I did not take a turn around my study table and look at what God had done in my life down to the present. And he said, in many a Sabbath morning when my soul had been cold and dry for the lack of prayer during the week, God broke my hard heart. And made me close with the gospel for my own soul before I began to proclaim it. That's what happens when we realize what God has done for us in Christ. We cannot live in a state of lethargy, spiritually speaking, when we realize what God has done for us. So I want you to hear me clearly today. The gospel is not just for people who need a little bit of help. The gospel is not for good people who might be useful to God. You see, we tend to look at people and we see their natural giftings or we see their outward looks or we see how they present themselves. And we look at people and we say, oh, that person could really be useful for God because they're especially gifted. They have these abilities and look how nice they look and look how wonderfully they present themselves. Oh, if God got that person, he could really do something with them. But we fail to understand that what God is looking at is not the outward appearance of man. God is not looking at what our natural abilities are in comparison to our need for the gospel. What God is looking at is he is looking in our hearts. He's looking deep in our souls. He's recognizing what our greatest need is. And he comes to us in the gospel. And to be saved is to be rescued from the wrath of God. And to be delivered to an eternal relationship with God. Apart from Christ Jesus, we are helpless sinners. The whole lot of us. That's our condition. Now, I'm also aware that today this is often not a popular message. Because after all, if we just tell it straight like the scripture tells it, that's going to repel people. We want people to feel comfortable. We want people to feel good about their experience. Even when they come to church, we want them to feel warm and fuzzy about their experience. But the problem with that is we can make people feel comfortable all the way to a sinner's hell. We can make people come to a place where they have a religious experience in the terms of being inoculated just enough with what they think is truth that they miss out on the ultimate truth. And you've got to come to this place to recognize your need if you're going to recognize the provision that God has for you. You'll never accept what God has for you by faith unless you first recognize what your condition is to begin with. And this is the reality of what Paul is teaching here. And then in Christ Jesus, secondly, we receive eternal life. And this is where the good news comes into full focus. Look again at verse 16. He said, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for 
eternal life. Paul was originally from Tarsus in Asia Minor. He had received some of his education at the feet of Gamaliel, a highly respected rabbi in Jerusalem. He had joined the Pharisaic movement and vigorously set out to defend his ancestral traditions and to defend the law. He persecuted the early church. He was on his way to Damascus where he wanted to arrest those who belonged to the way. And you remember what happened to him? He had a vision of Jesus Christ that changed his life. Jesus came to him and dramatically saved him. And Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, how does he interpret this experience that he had with Christ? Well, in the verses leading up to this, he describes his experience as an act of God's mercy. So what he is saying is, the chief of sinners received mercy. That God is merciful, and though we deserve punishment, he doesn't punish us. His judgment is just, but he laid our punishment on Jesus. This is not God turning a blind eye to sin. This is not God saying, oh, let's just sweep that under the rug. Your sins don't really matter. That's not what God is saying. God is saying that our sin is a very serious matter. And if we had to pay the penalty for our own sin, we would pay that penalty by being eternally separated from God, forever apart from the God who created us. But God draws us to himself, and he has mercy on us. Listen to the way way David puts it in Psalm 51 and verse 1. He pleads with God, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, your mercy blot out my transgressions. Now understand the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve, which is salvation. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve, which is judgment. And God grants us both grace and mercy in Christ Jesus when we receive eternal life. There's a powerful illustration of God's mercy in Matthew chapter 18. We'll not turn there right now, but you can go back and read it later. Uh, Jesus describes a rich ruler who was owed a large amount of money. So the ruler uh, says that this money needs to be collected and then the debtor comes to him and begs for mercy. The ruler mercifully forgives the debt. The parallel spiritual understanding for us here is that we owed a debt to God that we could never repay. There was nothing that we could do to make ourselves right with God. This debt is so great and our situation is so dire that there are no good deeds that can reconcile us to God. There's no right living that can bring us to a point of salvation. There's no righteousness in and of us that somehow can help us to measure up to God. The gap is too great. But yet God freely forgives us when we put our faith in Jesus. The penalty is laid on Jesus and the forgiveness is extended to us. But now you remember also, after the ruler in the parable forgave the debt, the person who owed the money then in turn refused to forgive somebody else. And the ruler then judged the ungrateful person. When we have been forgiven so much, And when we have been shown such great mercy, we are in turn to do the same for others. 
the example is also the pattern. And when Paul writes that he is an example of the extraordinary patience of God, this could refer to an outline sketch of an artist or of a word illustration expressing a purpose. And here's what Paul knew. He knew that his life and his salvation and his service to God was a pattern for other people who would believe. Remember, he's speaking to the church so that the church has a framework for living. He's speaking in the church to individuals so they too might understand that their lives and their salvation and their service to God is also a pattern for others who believe. So this applies to us today in the 21st century, that your life and your salvation and your service to God is to be a pattern for others who would believe. Now, maybe today you don't know Christ. You've not yet believed. If you were honest in your heart of hearts, you would say, I've never been saved. I know that I don't have a relationship with God in Christ Jesus. I know that I've never received the gift of eternal life. And you might also say, God could never save a person like me. Or you might look at other people and think, well, God can never save a person like that. Well, I want you to know that Jesus came to save people just like you. And Jesus came to save people just like them. And if he can save someone like Paul, he can save anybody. And when we compare ourselves to God rather than to other people, we'll look back and we'll realize that's us. That's our story. That there was no way that we could be saved on our own. There was no eternal hope for us. There was no forgiveness for us, but yet God extended it to us. And I think this is what drove the missionary heart of God because when he looked back at his life and he saw what Christ Jesus had rescued him from and he saw how God turned his blinded eyes and his hard heart to eyes that could see into a heart that was softened to the things of God and he realized what God had done for him, he knew that God could do it for other people as well. And as he was the missionary to the Gentiles, he experienced and he preached in some very difficult places. But yet his heart was compelled because he believed that God could save. And I want to encourage you today because maybe you've got a lost husband or a lost wife or a lost child, an unsaved grandchild, a neighbor or a co-worker that you might have been sharing with and praying for for years. And you might be tempted to give up hope and to think, well, God's never going to save them. They, they're never going to turn to him and believe. Don't give up because God is long-suffering. The Bible says that God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it is the heart of God that people would be saved, that all men everywhere would repent and believe in Jesus. And so we pray and we share and we believe. Eternal life is mentioned 25 times specifically in the Gospels. It's mentioned nine times by Paul. And the Lord Jesus defined it in John 17 in verse 3. He says this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How would you describe eternal life to someone who has not received it by faith? Well, Jesus uses the word to know. 
He says that it is a first-hand experience. One commentator put it this way, life eternal then is not mere conscience and unending existence, but it is a life of acquaintance with God in Christ. Eternal life is a relationship with God. It is life with God. And you understand how this moves this out of the realm of religious activity. This moves this out of the realm of uh, a, an apathetic way of thinking about our faith. We're not thinking about our faith as uh, a mere occasional church attendance or maybe occasionally giving some money to the Lord's work or maybe occasionally signing up and volunteering for something that the church is doing or something that's happening in the community. And you understand that's how a lot of people view their faith. They're, they're all in as long as they don't have anything else that's better to do. As long as something else doesn't crowd it out, they've got time for God. And how can that be? If we understand that our Christian faith is about life with God and a relationship with God in Christ, then how can we relegate it to nothing more than an act of convenience? It has to be what's down deep in our hearts and what we value the most and what drives our our affections the most. And the Bible says that eternal life is a free gift from God. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus describes eternal life as a present possession, but it is also a future reality. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And Jesus said that eternal life continues with God after physical life on this earth is over. You remember what he said in the Gospel of John? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. The hope of the Gospel is that one day when our last heartbeat uh, takes place on this earth and we draw our last breath, and we transition from this life into the next, that that's not the end of the story. In fact, we're just getting started in the here and now. We are living life with God now in a spirit of worship and an attitude of giving God our very best because we want to know Him and we want to make Him known. But there is coming a day when it will be true for us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it is going to be a seamless transition from this life to the next. And we're going to see in all of the beauty of heaven what God intends for us to experience forever and ever with Him. And it only comes to us through His grace and His mercy. And that grace and mercy is for you. So I ask you today, have you in Christ Jesus received eternal life? Because if you haven't, your life could change in an instant, in a moment, if you'd be willing to repent and believe. And then third, to the king be honor and glory forever. Look now at verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. Now, please don't miss what's happening here in verse 17. This is not just a discussion about the facts. Yes, there are facts here that are absolutely rock-solid truth. 
But when Paul thinks about what God had done in his life, he broke into praise and worship. This is a man, when he reflects on the beauty of Christ Jesus and on what he's done in his life, he breaks into praise and worship. Why? Because he's overwhelmed and he's overcome. This is a man who never got over what Jesus did in his life. And I hope that that's the spirit of our faith as well in our life with Christ, that we would never get over what God has done for us. How can we live a life that is complacent? How can we live a life that is only a a faith of convenience when God has done so much for us? We too ought to be overwhelmed and overcome just as Paul was. Because in the message of the gospel, we find how God relates to us in his mercy and his grace and his love and his patience. And here in what follows, God is praised for attributes that separate him from us and exalt him over us. God is king and his eternality is proclaimed. Now there was nothing out of the ordinary about a king in those days. It was a common manner of rule. Oh, but friends, there is something altogether different about this king. This king is God and king over all creation. Isaiah 37 and verse 16 says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So what is he telling us? The king has a kingdom and his reign has no end. You need to understand that all of the kingdoms of the earth will end. The reigns of the kings of the earth have and will end. And history and time as we know it will end. And there's so many people that wrap up their lives in all of the political nonsense. And we look at the absolute foolishness and wickedness of some of the rulers that are currently in place, even in our own country, that are downright embarrassing. And we get wrapped up in that and we begin to think that that's the ultimate. It's not the ultimate. Does God use these things to bring order in his society? Yes, he does. But you better know that all of that stuff is temporary. All of the political wrangling and all of the political fervor, it is all temporary. But this king and this kingdom is eternal. He is forever. His reign is without end. And what that says to us is that we live as citizens of God's kingdom, first and foremost. This is our priority. Everything else pales in comparison. It's not even measurable in comparison. But the God of eternity and his kingdom is what is forever. And someone said God towers over all time, times, and eternity itself as the sovereign God. So beware of wrapping yourself up in things that are of, at best, temporary importance when there is something of eternal significance God is immortal and he's invisible now God alone is immortal as an original eternal attribute 
the only way we gain immortality in that sense is by God granting it to us in eternal life. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15 and 16 says this, He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. And here, God the Father is understood by us from his word to be spirit, and he dwells in unapproachable light. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, God told Moses that no man can see me and live. In fact, at Mount Sinai, the presence of God was so powerful on the mountain that God told Moses to warn the people to make sure they didn't come too close to the mountain or they would die. Remember, only the high priest could go behind the veil in the Holy of Holies uh, to the ark where God was enthroned above the cherubim. And even he can only do so on a limited basis and then only with blood that was placed on the mercy seat. And John 1 and verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the truth of Scripture is that God has spoken in various times and in various ways, Hebrews chapter 1, but he has spoken preeminently through his Son, Jesus Christ who came to manifest the glory of God in the world, glory upon glory, that the very Son of God would come to this world to make God known and to reconcile us to Him. So now, because of the blood of Jesus, we have full and free access. We don't even only have full and free access. We are invited to come. How? With boldness. That's how we're invited to come. With confidence. With assurance. Because Jesus has opened the way for us to God. And he is the only God. Psalm 86 and verse 10 says, For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. We understand from the scripture that God is one in essence and three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he is co-equal and co-eternal. We are to have no other gods before him. And he says here emphatically, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. What is this glory? It's the particular excellence of a thing that makes it praiseworthy. Glory in the Bible is especially associated with the presence of God. In the Old Testament, it carried the idea of, of weight or substance. C.S. Lewis wrote a great essay titled The Weight of Glory and he writes this in part. He said, I turn to the idea of glory. There's no getting away from the fact that this idea is very prominent in the New Testament in an early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms, crowns, white robes, thrones, and splendor like the sun and the stars. And he says, all this makes no immediate appeal to me at all. Lewis is speaking in terms of his humanity. And he said, and in that, I respect that I fancy myself as a typical modern, but glory suggests two ideas to me, one of which seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. And here's how he states it. He said, as for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion. 
and therefore of hell rather than of heaven. And for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? Believer, follower of Jesus, you are the light of the world. You are to be a reflection of the glory of God in the world. You are to proclaim him and to make him known. And God is glorious and his glory is proclaimed in all of creation and especially in the lives of his children. So that his majesty, his wonder, his splendor and his greatness are celebrated when we give glory to God. So I say to you in summary, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. That's the message that we proclaim. You probably followed along with some of the news of the damage and things that happened with the hurricane, Hurricane Ian. And uh, Fort Myers Beach, Florida was more or less the epicenter area uh, where it came on shore. And sadly, last report I read, somewhere around 129 people had perished, mostly by drowning. And there was catastrophic property damage, and it's going to be years in recovery. We should continue to pray for that recovery. But I tell you what that storm did, and it and it's true with uh, often with natural disasters and big events like that. It mobilized a massive rescue mission to the point that hundreds and even thousands of people were rescued from very serious circumstances. And as I was thinking about that and other situations and circumstances like it, I thought about how we're accustomed in times of tragedy to see these major rescue efforts mobilized quickly. And then I drew a spiritual parallel. Is the church, is our church living, and are we as individual believers living with a similar sense of urgency, spiritually speaking? If we believe that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and if we believe that Jesus gave us the great commission to be carried out, this is the mission of the church, and if we believe that there are people separated from God currently, eternally, without Christ, then should we not be living with a sense of urgency? Should we not be living with a sense of intensity? And as I was thinking about even our event yesterday evening, it was so much fun and we had so many people gather. This thought came to mind. There were hundreds and hundreds of people that came up on our hill yesterday. The majority of whom probably don't have a relationship with God in Christ. Are we satisfied with having a fun event? Having a lot of people come through our facility? Being a blessing just in the moment? Or do we truly love and care for our community with urgency, with the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost? That should be how we're living. 
It requires some soul searching on our part as to whether or not we are. But that's what we want to be because that's ultimately what matters. So I ask you in closing, have you been found by Jesus? Is your faith in him? Do you know him? If you don't, as I said earlier, your life could change for eternity in an instant, all because of what Jesus has done for you in his death, burial, and resurrection. And he invites you to receive him by faith. And then as believers, are you individually? I'm asking you a question. It's not what are we doing collectively, but I'm asking you now. Are you living with urgency for the things of God? Or are you spending your life on things that are temporary and are not going to last? That's the question before us. Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to gather here today in worship. We thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to the church and ultimately to us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And for that, we are very thankful. Help us not to take that for granted. To realize the great price that was paid for us when the blood of Jesus was spilled at Calvary. We thank you for the power of the resurrection, the hope that we have in eternal life. Help us as believers to live with a holy sense of urgency. Help us not to be satisfied with complacent existence but help us to live and to love with the passion that you've instilled in us by your spirit I pray if there are any who have not yet believed have not yet come to Christ and received eternal life that now would be the time that they would look to Jesus and Jesus only for their salvation and God we believe that you'll save their souls We give this time of close over to you as there are decisions that need to be made, prayers that need to be prayed, steps of faith that need to be taken. We pray, God, you be glorified through it in Jesus' name. Amen.